I told Shelley, this is killing me. <laughs> she holds a little wad of tissue paper. <laughs> she says, I don't have another one. <laughs> Great. I miss my mom. Today's her birthday. Don't do that. You're going to make it worse. <laughs> April 24th, 1974 is the day my mom died from brain cancer. She was 45. And her death came days after I turned 21 and just short of three weeks after Shelley and I married. I miss my mom. To this day, I wish there were a way the people in my life could know the woman I call mom. <clears throat> Having said that, we know that not every mom is a great mom. I didn't know my mom was a great mom, so I didn't know she was a great woman. <clears throat> and more than that, I didn't know she was a great person. I had to discover that. In fact, I had to be shocked into it. And to this day, it took a crisis to open my eyes to see her as much more than my mom. But I'm not going to talk about my mom. I'm going to talk about a mom. Her name is Ritzba. And I want to read to you about her from 2 Samuel chapter 21, verses 1 through 14. Now there was a famine in the days of David for three years, year after year. And David sought the face of the Lord. And the Lord said, There is blood guilt on Saul and on his house, because he put the Gibeonites to death. So the king called the Gibeonites and spoke to them. Now the Gibeonites were not of the people of Israel, but of the remnant of the Amorites. Although the people of Israel had sworn to spare them, in fact it was a covenant made between Joshua and the Gibeonites in Joshua 9, Saul had sought to strike them down in his zeal for the people of Israel and Judah. And David said to the Gibeonites, What shall I do for you? And how shall I make atonement that you may bless the heritage of the Lord? The Gibeonites said to him, It is not a matter of silver or gold between us or the house of Saul. Neither is it for us to put any man to death in Israel. And he said, What do you say that I shall do for you? They said to the king, The man who consumed us 
and planned to destroy us so that we should have no place in all the territory of Israel. Let seven of his sons be given to us so that we may hang them before the Lord at Gibeah of Saul, the chosen of the Lord. And the king said, I will give them. But the king spared Mephibosheth, the son of Saul's son, Jonathan, because of the oath of the Lord that was between them, between David and Jonathan, the son of Saul. The king took the two sons of Ritzbah, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, Armani and Mephibosheth, and the five sons of Merib, the daughter of Saul, whom she bore to Adriel, the son of Barziah, the Mahalathite, and he gave them into the hands of the Gibeonites, and they hanged them on the mountain before the Lord. And the seven of them perished together. They were put to death in the first days of harvest at the beginning of the barley harvest, which was mid-April to late to, to early May. Then Ritzbah, then Ritzbah, the daughter of Aya, took sackcloth and stretched it to the rock from the beginning of harvest until rain fell upon them from the heavens. And she did not allow the birds of the air to come upon them, either by day or the beasts of the field by night. When David was told what Rizba, the daughter of Aya, the concubine of Saul, had done, David went and took the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan from the men of Jebus Gilead, who had stolen them from the public square of Beth Shan, where the Philistines had hanged them on the day the Philistines killed Saul on Gilboa. And he brought up from there the bones of Saul and the bones of his son Jonathan. And they gathered the bones of those who were hanged, and they buried the bones of Saul and his son Jonathan in the land of Benjamin in Zelah, in the tomb of Kish his father. And they did all that the king commanded. And after that, God responded to the plea for the land. It's a horrible story. But think about this. If it weren't for Ritzbah, we wouldn't see the horror. It wouldn't touch us. We wouldn't feel it. It'd just be so many black details on a white page of paper. In fact, Ritzba is just a detail in a story of justice. One detail in verse 8, a catalog of facts about the boys that take Saul's place. This is what it says, the two sons of Ritzba, the daughter of Aiah, whom she bore to Saul, Armani and Mephibosheth. That's that. 
There's another about Merib, the mother of the other five boys. And like Saul's legal wife, we know only her name and that of her father. You see, unless a person influences the plot of a story, a name is just a detail. By the way, the name of Saul's legal wife is a hit in Noam from 1 Samuel 14, verse 50. And we know nothing more about her. She's a mystery of history. In some ways, my mother was a detail in the story of my life. A crisis. And the way she handled it changed the plot of my story and my life. She became more than the mom of John Venema to me. She became a larger-than-life woman and person. Ritzpah changes the story. In fact, the story of justice became a story of redemption and not just a story of judgment. In verse 10, we read, Then Ritzpah, I think it should be translated, but Ritzpah. Most versions just say, and Ritzpah. There's no verse 10 without Ritzpah. The story ends at verse 9. We turn the page. The judgment has been enacted. The boys have atoned for Saul's sins and the sins of his house. End of story. And the rains come, or they're expected to come. No verse 9 without Ritzpah. The amazing thing is that in a search for solutions, in a search without solutions of sorts, in a world of covenant justice, David, Israel, the Gibeonites return from the judgment to their homes and wait for the rain. But Ritzpah, but Ritzpah acts to redeem the unredeemable. Unredeemable, as shown not only by their death, but their exposure to the wild birds and beasts of prey. A heinous curse upon their memory. A dehumanization of who they are being left to the wild. The curse of covenant breakers. Dishonor for dishonor. The shaming and dehumanizing penalty. 
But Ritzbah makes a decision of devotion to demonstrate her love, to humanize her sons and her kinsmen, to forestall the curse, to forestall the curse until the rains come. She chooses to love in the only way she can, with a love that is powerless to proceed in any other way, without rank or resources, under the shame of Saul's house and her own illegitimate relationship to that house. She chooses to make a difference, to love, to honor, in the hope that rain would fall and break the long drought as a result of her sacrifice, a collective sacrifice that she joins. She joins that sacrifice out of love, out of a desire to redeem the unredeemable, out of a decision of devotion. What a mom! What a woman! What a person! It's public, their deaths. It's in a public place. And people walk around her and away from her rather than to her. But she carries on her vigil. This vigil of humanizing the dehumanized, of honoring the dishonored, of loving those who are beyond love. And she stretched her sackcloth to the rock. It can be translated that way, and many smart people say it should be translated. I mean, what does on the rock mean? To the rock. The very idea, the verb, has the notion of pitching or stretching a tent. It's an image of shelter. And perhaps also, it's Second Samuel's allusion to her dependence upon the Lord, who is the rock. The very same rock of Hannah's prayer that opens the two books that we call First and Second Samuel. The same rock that in the very next chapter is the rock to whom David prays. Not once, not twice, but three times in chapter 22. She stretches her sackcloth to the rock, and she holds vigil in the hopes that her sacrifice, as a part of a collective sacrifice, will make a difference. But no matter how I see it, We are to see it. We're to see Ritzpah's decision of devotion through the eyes of David. Underscore that. 
were to understand her, to view her, to interpret her, that which we can't understand, although because of her, there's a heartache and a horror about what has to sometimes happen in sometimes a search for solutions, a search without solutions, a world of indifference where we're crushed by circumstances that we can't control or change. And it threatens to beat us down to a pulp to where we do nothing, we become passive and hopeless and despondent and dispirited and despaired. But this woman rises up. And it's David's response that shows us how to see Ritzpah's heart. She changes the heart of a king. And in turn, the heart of God. That's the story. There's no 9 through 14 without her. But verses 11 through 14 are written because of her. And together, what she did and what David does alters the history of a nation, even the story of King David and his righteous treatment of Israel's first king and house with an honorable burial. And the unseasonable rains come. The unseasonable rains come. Rains that didn't come upon the atoning deaths of Saul's house, but upon the heart-changing devotion of a mom, a woman, a person who chose to love with a redeeming love, to redeem what she could, even when things were beyond her and out of her control. Flannery O'Connor, celebrated Southern writer, said, if my stories are complete, if my stories are complete, it's because I see everything as beginning with original sin, taking in the redemption, and reckoning on a final judgment. That's a powerful, powerful insight into what sets Flannery O'Connor's work apart from other work. But it's not just a recipe for good writings and good stories. It's a wonderful worldview that is ours through the Bible, through Jesus Christ, through the God of redemption. For it brings into focus that we belong to a broken world of sin. A sin that is a blight on every person, every family, every generation. But there's 
the redemption. Then comes the redemption. Sin is not the beginning, middle, and end of the story. There's the redemption. And that's the quality that affects the stories of Flannery O'Connor. And that's the quality, the effects of our story changing right here in 2 Samuel 21. And they can be story changing in your life too. And the final judgment. God always brings the verdict. But that He is God means we keep before us that the God of the redemption, the resurrection, the God of grace and goodness, that God prevails. And that's what stirs the heart not to give up, not to quit. Ritzba shows us that when push comes to shove, love does. And love makes a difference. Love changes the plot, alters the ending, changes hearts, changes the course of others, even history in the hands of God. Didn't the cross? Love makes a difference in an otherwise indifferent and cruel chain of events, events beyond our control in the midst of undeserved circumstances. It certainly makes a difference in the one who loves. Love can break a chain of horror. Love can bring honor from shame, dignify, humanize, alter objects and agents of revulsion. Love introduces redemption. In fact, apostolic men Apostles Peter and James both declare that love covers a multitude of sins. That's an atoning influence. Love heals the wounded heart of its sour bitterness. Love is the season of spring to the winter and gray of a cold and frozen heart. How can I say this? Make these audacious claims, it's the gospel. It's the redemption, the God of good creation, of good purpose, and most of all of a son who died for the sins of Saul, me, you, your enemy, even your hero, for love and for new life. It's the same gospel that I saw in my mother, more than my mom, more than a woman, a person who helpless in a dizzying search for solutions, a search without solutions, chose to love, to redeem the unredeemable, to make decisions of devotion because when push came to shove, love does and she did. And she showed me the power of love and redemption in the shadow of a husband's abandonment and the darkness of death. It was startling, even heart-changing, to see her fullness, God's fullness, in her as I watched her from the hollow chamber and emptiness of my own soul. And that's 
what changed me. That's what showed me the reality of God, of the redemption, of the gospel. And I stand before you today and talk about it with great passion because it is real. But it was shown to me by a a mom, a woman, a person in the midst of great circumstances that threatened to crush her. But she had a power of love because of God in her life. This morning, whatever your circumstances, you know, it's become kind of fashionable to poo-poo Mother's Day. Okay, what word would you use if you were in my place? (laughs) We need to lift up these things that are true and life-changing, for they are what not only change us, but inspire us to make a difference for Christ, for the Lord of glory in a world of despair and discouragement. Will you stand with me? I'm going to close this in prayer. Moms, dads, women, men, adults, children, you could make a difference right where you're at. Don't wait for the rains. Make it rain through the power of God's love. Let me close in prayer for us. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for your son. Thank you for the moving of your spirit. Thank you for mothers today. We praise you in Jesus' name and all of God's people said, Amen. Happy Mother's Day.